it's not really the food you're putting in your mouth that's going to change your life and your health. It's the thoughts that are going on in your head. So please don't discount the part about your thoughts. One last thing on that, if somebody wants the science, because sometimes people are like, that's just woo-woo, there's no science, but there is science. Dr. Bruce Lipton, world-renowned cell biologist, I've interviewed him on my Keto Camp podcast. He has proven that your thoughts are a frequency that are small enough to penetrate your cells and communicate with your DNA nucleus. Meaning, if it's a negative thought, a stinking thinking thought, a hateful thought, a resentful thought, an angry thought, that signal sent to your DNA tells your DNA to produce inflammatory proteins. But if it's a healthy thought, a grateful thought, a loving thought, an abundant thought, that frequency is then sent to the DNA to tell the DNA to produce anti-inflammatory proteins. If we have 60,000 thoughts per day, that means we have 60,000 opportunities to put your body in a healing anti-inflammatory state every day. So that's what I want to leave your audience with. You, you are really in control of your DNA, of your genetics, not the other way around. Born in 92 on the block with the sharks Come from a different cloth Y'all would get ripped apart You want a diamond, then you gotta get it in the dark We dropping nuggets like Carmelo with the Rucker Park Now we eating from state to state We scrape the plate I put my eggs in the basket Took a leap of faith I took a chance Now we growing, see the impact Decoding success with special guests Now let's bring Matt Welcome to the show, Matt LaBreeze here, your host of the top 1% globally ranked podcast, Decoding Success. And you want to know what? There is one thing that I know for certain about you without even seeing your face or hearing your name, but I know that you are a high performer. Someone that wants the most out of every bucket of life that includes health, mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. And if you're like me, there may have been a time or times where we can let our health slide to the side for the sake of convenience or for comfort or for whatever reason. Well, Today we're bringing to you the health detective. You've just heard a quick snippet from him, but we are joined today by our friend Ben Azadi. Ben went through a radical transformation that you're going to hear about in the beginning parts of this episode, which ultimately led him to becoming an author many times over, as well as the go-to source for intermittent fasting and the ketogenic diet. He is known as the health detective because he investigates dysfunction and he educates, not medicates, to bring the body back to normal function, and that's what he's helping us with today. We're going to be doing a whole lot of talking on how our mindset and our our thoughts impact our physical health, some of the modern day health myths that need to be shot down ASAP to change your life, the best ways to optimize your performance no matter what it is you do professionally, and just so much more. Again, now I can say this and mean it, you're listening to this for a reason, and that reason may be because you really need to hear something inside of this episode, or maybe someone you know does. You have the ability to change someone's life by sharing this, so make sure you're doing that. Be the person that steps up to help change simply by sharing this episode. Without further ado, we bring to you our friend, Ben Azadi. Ben, welcome to Decoding Success, man. Your body of work is amazing. I've been keeping up with you on TikTok, YouTube, following your journey for quite some time now. So really appreciate it. And thank you so much for joining us. I'm excited to be here with you, Matt. Uh, likewise, I love what you're doing and your podcast is awesome. So grateful to be here with you today. Now, I got to say, I, I appreciate those kind words. However many episodes we're into this, I realize I really should be asking our guests more often how they're doing. So I'm going to ask you, how are you? 
I'm doing well. I uh, had a great workout earlier today. Did a nice lower body workout in the fasted state. Then mm. I ate a good meal with eggs and some avocados and some grass-fed cheese, olive oil, and I'm feeling good. I'm charged up and focused and I'm feeling really good today. So when you say in a fasted state, lower body exercise, are you going heavy? What are you talking about? Deadlifts? Like what does that look like exactly? Yeah, actually today I did some dumbbell deadlifts. I did some nice. uh, thrusters, which uh, those front squats and then a press. Yep. Did some sprinting and some l- dumbbell lunges and then some stretching right after that. All in the oh. fasted state, meaning I didn't eat anything yet until after the workout. I got to ask you this because, I mean, I hope I'm not the only one that experiences this, but there have been times where I've worked out in a fasted state. I've worked really hard, you know, heart rate up, just really put in the work while in that fasted state, but have felt woozy or lightheaded and it's a little uncomfortable. Have you ever experienced that? Yeah, there's a couple reasons why, right? Um, You deplete your sugar reserves, your glycogen stores, Mm -hmm. and then your body kind of bonks, right? And that's that woozy feeling. So taking some electrolytes beforehand can make a big difference. Sea salt or just high quality electrolytes. Being really metabolically flexible and running on ketones could also Mm -hmm. help as well. But even with that, even though I'm super metabolically flexible and I'm in ketosis and all that, if my glycogen stores are very low because I haven't had a lot of carbs and I'm fasted, so that depletes your sugar reserves, and I do like an hour to two hours of basketball in a fasted state, I tend to bonk. So sometimes I'll bring some coconut water or just really go high with my electrolytes, and that usually does the trick for myself. That's awesome. So you, you still play basketball? Yeah, usually every Sunday unless I'm traveling. Awesome. But yeah, here in Miami Beach, I go to the court. I, my favorite sport is basketball. Wait, so you're based in Miami now? Yep, Miami Beach. Yep. Are you still a, well, I was going to say a Redskins fan. Are you still a Commanders fan? Yeah, well, I still call them the Redskins, although that might offend me too. People. Yeah, <laughs> I am. Yeah, although it's tough to watch them these days. They stripped their name. They're not that good. But yes, I'm still a loyal fan for them. I respect it. I've seen the logo in many of your videos, whether it be on your hat or like, a, I, I think they were called fat heads that go up on the wall. I, I've, yeah, I've seen them exactly, in the videos. Yeah. I've seen that. But I want to actually backtrack and just talk about your journey, right? Because like you're talking to us from who you are now, but let's just backtrack so that we could bring everyone up to speed. I mean, I've caught YouTube videos of you where you just you say that you'd like dramatize your story per se in the particular video I'm referring to but I mean you did it for the sake of getting it into one YouTube video you know you talked about being bullied you talked about being overweight I guess the first question that I want to ask in regards to that is like the eating habits like where did they come from at that particular time in your life from an upbringing perspective because you talked about drinking soda I mean I'm a kid. I, when I was a kid, I drank soda all the time. I mean, I would chug cans of brisk iced tea, which are loaded with sugar. Like it's kind of just normal, but I'm curious, like where did that, where did those habits stem from for you? Yeah. Great question. Well, you become your environment, right? You know that. Mm. And Jim Rohn said that you hang around five broke, unhealthy people. You're the sixth one. And that was my life growing up, right? My mom worked at Kentucky Fried Chicken, two of them, Mm. as a matter of fact, and a Walgreens. And she would bring me back home Kentucky Fried Chicken because it was free fried chicken. Of course, you would eat that, right? And of course, I drank the soda. I also drank the iced tea. And I had hung around the the bad crowd with people who were very toxic. So you become your environment. But not only that, A big part of the reason why I was eating so unhealthily and I was so unhealthy myself, I was physically obese, but also mentally obese. Big reason for that, yes, my environment, but also I didn't have any goals. I had goals the size of a pregnant ant, (laughs) very, very small. And uh, my highest aspirations were getting the highest Madden football score or Call of Duty score, but I didn't have any goals. I didn't have a purpose. I didn't 
well, I did have a purpose, but I wasn't aware of my purpose. And I filled that void of not living on purpose with my purpose because there was a space that needed to be filled. I filled it with food because you got that instant dopamine hit, that satisfaction, Mm -hmm. and you felt good in the moment. But then, you know, hour later, two hours later, it's gone and you just want another hit and another hit. So I really believe when you're not living on life, living a life on purpose with your purpose, you're going to fill it with toxic behaviors. And that's exactly what happened to me. When I got clear on my purpose and what's important to me, I didn't have time for that. You know, I want to have energy. I want to have focus. I want to have longevity and drinking soda and eating fast food and all those bad behaviors I had doesn't suit this new goal of mine, this new lifestyle of mine. There's a big mismatch. So that right there was a big game changer for me, finding what's important to me and then aligning my activities to line up with that. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that perspective. I'm curious to talk about the environment, especially being that, you know, you had mentioned your mother who, you know, brought you into this world, right? Someone that wanted to provide for you. It's really hard to, or from my experience at least, to shift out of an environment where with family, with really close friends, right? So what was that like for you to build the environment that would benefit the person that you wanted to become? Like, what's your advice to do so? Yeah, it's a good question and a very important question as well, because what I've noticed, not just with myself, but I've coached thousands and thousands of students through my Keto Camp Academy. When you change, you become a threat to everybody in your life Mm. who does not change. (laughs) So there's two types of people out there. The the haters that are obvious, they're going to tell you what they think about you. They're going to comment on social media with your new goals that they think are ridiculous. But that's obvious. There's no big deal with those. You know, you can handle that. But it's it's the people that are close to you, the naysayers, the family members, the friends who make those subtle comments like, Ben, you know, you've changed. You you used to go and party with me and drink the alcohol and eat the fast food. Now you're, you're changing. And what happens is you become a threat to them because it starts to point a mirror to what they're not changing. They're staying stuck. They're not making these goals and and changing their ways to live a healthier, happier life. So it's easier for them to kind of drag you back down to their level than it is for them to change. So you become a threat to them. And it's going to suck. Whenever you have a goal and you embark on that goal, you'll get those comments and it'll suck. For me, for example, when I started to work out for the first time in my life, I was super sore for days and I continuously (laughs) got sore. And then I would go to parties, I would go to events and I was really set on my goal. I set my goal to get healthy, to get a six pack and all of the goals I had back then. So they would offer me beer, they would offer me fast food, they would offer me chips and I would say no. And they would make fun of me, right? And it sucks, but you have to be so convicted and clear on your goal because it's a pa- the, the person with the most conviction is going to win. Is there Are they more convicted to have you drink with them or are you more convicted with your goals that you want to hit? For me, it was I was more convicted to my goals. But here's my success formula that I'm going to share with you. If we're talking about decoding success, here's my personal way to decode success and my philosophy that I hope your audience adapts to and, and uh, uses. When you embark on goals, it tends to suck, right? You stretch yourself, you get outside your comfort zone, whether it's soreness from a workout or starting a new job or whatever it is, you start to stretch and expand, it tends to suck. But the formula goes as such, suck, 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 cess. Okay, you Mm. embrace suck, you just keep pushing forward and then the frequency creates the genius, but you just never give up. You embrace it and you break the universe and that's what I've learned over the years. I love that. That's a really beautiful thing and I just want to let you know that in 250, 260 plus episodes, no one's ever said that before. So I appreciate the very original take there. I actually want to just backtrack just a quick second. As we started to talk about your journey, you said something that was very interesting, right? Originally, you had said that you didn't have a purpose, but then you backtracked and said that you did, you just didn't know what it was yet. What did the process of discovering that purpose look like for you? Yeah. So 
a lot of the time when people, when I was going through a lot of difficult times in my life, whether it was like depression or suicide, a lot of challenges, underneath all of that was my purpose. Like for example, my dad being sick, my dad had type 2 diabetes and very common in America, type 2 diabetes is everywhere and it's a very, very common disease, unfortunately. So I was dealing with that. I didn't understand it. I would take him to his doctor's appointments and he ended up getting very sick to the point where he actually suffered a stroke and he ended up passing away. And in that struggle, in that challenge and that depression and just being so devastated came my purpose, right? I, I was already in the health space and I was treating it like a hobby. When my dad died, I started to treat it like an actual job and a purpose because I saw the way my dad suffered and the way that everybody around him suffered, including me and my family. And then I looked at all the people that are suffering out there with their health and I have the solution. So it, it really revealed my purpose to me, but I had to go through the pain. I don't know if my dad never passed away. I don't know if I would have ever become so committed to delivering this message to the world. I might have still been treating it like a hobby. So if, if you're going through a challenge right now, or if you've gone through a challenge recently, there could be a beautiful thing to come out of that, your purpose that becomes revealed to you. So that was one part of it. But even before that, Matt, I was obese and suicidal and I got healthy and I, I just solved my own problem, meaning I was unhealthy and I got fit and healthy. And then my friends and coworkers and people on social media started to ask me, how did you do it? So, you know, I started doing personal training and that involved into a certified health coach and then books, et cetera. But it all started with like the problem that I had, which was being overweight. So I think for a lot of people, your purpose could be revealed to you from the challenges that you might be going through at this very moment. Yeah. Now, when it comes down to the Ben that was depressed and had suicidal ideation and whatnot, if you could talk to that Ben today, what would you tell him? I would tell him that you become what you think about most of the time. Mm -hmm. So how are those conversa conversations going with yourself, Ben? Because you have 60,000 thoughts per day and you are the most influential person that you'll speak to today. What are you saying to yourself? You become what you think about. That's a universal law, what you, what you feed energy to expand. So where are you feeding your energy? Are you having the stinking, thinking thoughts of negativity? Are you thinking about how overweight you are, how stupid you are, how ugly you are? Or are you thinking about health and abundance and gratitude? Because it's a choice and it's the yeah. greatest choice you have as a human being, your ability to choose your thoughts. So I would tell Ben, if your thinking is thinking, your dreams are shrinking. Okay, wake mm. up, take personal ownership and responsibility, work on one little tweak today, and that one tweak will end up turning into giant peaks in your life. When did you start to see the thoughts that were coming to mind? When did you start to see them shift, right? Something into something more favorable or something that was more aligned with who you wanted to be? When I changed my environment. So you, yeah. like I said at the beginning, Matt, you become your environment. Your environment will determine your thoughts. And the average person has about 60,000 thoughts per day. And they have determined in these studies by psychiatrists that out of those 60,000 thoughts, about 90% of them are the same thoughts from yesterday. And 85% of those thoughts are negative thoughts to think in. So when I changed my environment and I started to spend less time with people that were gossiping and had stinking thinking that were broken, unhappy, even cutting people out of my life, and then I started to spend more time, honestly, with myself and with books. I have a whole bunch of books behind me, but books became my new friends like Bob Proctor, Dr. Wayne Dyer, Lisa Nichols, Earl Nightingale, Jim Rohn, Tony Robbins. They became my new friends, whether they knew it or not. They were my new friends. And <laughs> I started to just invest a lot of time in myself and reading those books. And with doing that over time, my thoughts started to change. I started to become more aware of those thoughts. And it's still a daily, I'm not going to use the word struggle, but it's a, still a daily awareness that I you know, need
need to really be aware of those thoughts because if I could go and start spending time with people that are not beneficial to my life, I could start kind of going the other direction. So I got to be really selective with who I spend my time with. What was the first book that you felt made a shift in your life? And the reason I asked that is because I know what that book was for me. I'm just always curious to hear what people say. Yeah, well, I'll share and then I want to hear what your book is. So when I was depressed and when I was suicidal at 24 years old, I was on the internet looking for ways to end my life. Several times mm-hmm. I explored that. And the reason I didn't go with go through with it, it's only one reason, my mom. I kept thinking about my mom and I love my mom. I didn't want to devastate her like that. So it stopped me from pursuing that. And I knew I had to figure it out because I wasn't going to take my life, but I was also depressed and tired of my results. And the first book that I read, it was handed to me by my best friend and his wife, was The Slight Edge by Jeff Olson, which taught me about... <laughs> you look back, do you have it behind you? I just looked back. And the reason I looked back, it's, it's right behind me in a box. It was my birthday two weeks ago. A friend of mine sent it to me as a gift. It's so funny you say wow. that. It's so freaking yeah. crazy how the world That's works. So cool. <laughs> yeah, happy Holy birthday. I love shit. that. So... That was the book, right? And and you know, it wasn't that one book that changed everything forever, but that was yeah. the one book that got things started and essentially taught you that, hey, your daily habits compound over time to get you the results that you want or that you don't want. So you know, decide mm-hmm. on those daily habits, similar to Darren Hardy's like compound effect. So that was the book. It really made a big difference for me. I'm actually inspired to read it again because it's been several years and I'm curious to know what your book was, Matt. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, I was very grateful in my late teens and early 20s to be surrounded by people that I'm still surrounded with today that were older than me and in places that I wanted to see myself grow into. And at the time, I'll never forget, I had to have been 20 or 21. I was delivering pizza for or delivering uh, food for an Italian restaurant in my neighborhood. And I'll never forget as much money as I was making at that point. In fact, I'm very grateful. I made a lot of money in my early 20s. And with that said, I just remember sitting in my car in the back of the parking lot of the restaurant. And I said, there there has to be a way for me to do this with less effort. Mm. Like that was the thing that I said. And I remember pulling out my phone. It was probably one of the first iterations of the iPhone. And I typed it in. I said, books to become rich easier or something along those lines. And at the time, of course, you know, I was very money driven. That's obviously shifted over the course of my 20s. But I remember I got a list that came up. And the first book on the list was How to Win Friends and Influence People. Mm. And I said, all right, well, I'm going to get this book. And at the time, to be honest, Amazon wasn't as big as it is today. So I'm like, how the hell do I get it? I looked at Barnes & Noble. It was open for an hour after my shift ended. I drove over to that Barnes & Noble. They had one copy on the bookshelf. I bought it. And I... I just couldn't stop talking about the book after. And that really opened the door for change in my life because I I mean, I sucked academically until college because I went to private school my whole life and my parents just paid, paid, paid. And you just got moved along, moved along, moved along. I would play Call of Duty. I would focus on, you know, social things. I would never care about the academic side of things until I started to read on my own. And that's exactly why I asked that question, because I mean, now you know, reading seems a lot sexier to society. But back then, I really feel like it didn't. And it was like a really small group. And uh, it's beautiful to see that shift, though. It's it's incredible to hear a story like yours and how, you know, books can change a life. It can. Yeah, it could open up a whole new world. It did for me. And I love that story because it was just like the little steps that led you to Barnes and Nobles before they closed one (laughs) copy left. It's like, I love when you look back and you see all the things that have lined up. And that's a fantastic book as well. I've read that one several times. 
It's great. It's absolutely great. I have to ask you this because we're obviously talking about a lot of triumph, a lot of just beauty in this journey. I'm just really curious to shine a light on potential setbacks on this journey, right? Obviously, you know, from where you were back then to now, I'm sure you had a couple bumps in the road. I'm just curious what those looked like and how you overcame them. Yeah. What I've learned is that there's no straight line to success <laughs> that zigzag, 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 but you want to just keep it going up. Eventually, most people give up before that they achieve that success. It's kind of like that, ho- like ho- a hockey stick as you know, it goes yeah. kind of flat. And then the people who are really committed that stay with it, boom, they shoot up and they're an overnight success, even though they've been at it for 10 to 14 years, like myself, 14 years. Yeah. So setbacks, I mean, they're bound to happen. And the bigger game you play, the, the bigger the setback, right? And the bigger the victory. Uh, it's kind of a, a dangerous, but exciting game to be in, right? So, I mean, I've had financial setbacks. I've had setbacks with my, my dad that passed away, which really like mm-hmm. put a hole in my heart. I had setbacks backs with the, you know, the CrossFit gym that I used to own here in Miami, I thought that that was my future. I was trying to buy out my business partner and we were going through litigation. It was like a five to six month battle. And at the end of it, I actually ended up selling my shares and leaving, which was not what I wanted to do in the beginning. And it ended up being one of the greatest decisions because I was focused now online 100%. I could reach more people. And I'm, you know, I created a keto camp out of that and rebranded and all these cool things happened. But, you know, when you're going through the setback, (laughs) a lot of people are just focusing on the setback. But here's what I always say. It's not about the setback. It's always about the get back. Setbacks are really setups for something great, learning opportunities. But you got to keep your eyes on the prize. If you focus too much on what's going wrong, then everything's a problem. But when you focus on the end goal, you understand that it's not in the way, it is on the way. It is a stepping stone there learn from it, pivot, and just keep going forward. I truly believe that that word failure only exists when you give up on a goal. But as long as you continue pivoting, even if they're setbacks, even if they're major setbacks, as long as you never quit on said goal, you'll never experience failure. You're just going to keep going there. So I'm going to share with you real quick, Matt, because your podcast is, and I don't know if you're going to ask this question later on like my definition of success, but I want to share it right now. My favorite definition of success, I don't know if you've ever heard it, but it's from Earl Nightingale. He said this in the 1950s. It's probably the greatest definition of success that I've ever heard. And it still stands to, to this day, even though that was 60 years ago. And he said, success is the progressive realization of a worthy ideal, okay? Mm. Which means a worthy ideal is a goal you've fallen in love with. And that could be the best soccer mom, soccer dad, housewife, football player, podcaster, whatever, that goal you have fallen in love with. Success is the progressive realization of that, meaning that's the goal, this is where you are, and as long as you're progressing and closing the gap, you're successful. And that's where I look at setbacks because yeah, you're going towards it and then there's a setback, but as long as you keep progressing, you're successful in my book. I love that so much. Now, I, I got to let you know this. We have been going around New York City, very TikTok-y, walking up to people and asking them how they personally define success, cool. right? Just like random strangers walking up to them, asking them that question. I used to do it with the show all the time. And then I received a review on Apple and it was like, you know what's coming once the show opens. And I was like, you know what? All right, let me stray away from that a little bit until people, until it cools off. But we've been going around New York City asking random people that question. I'm going to ask you... What's a question you think we should ask people on the streets of New York? I, I love that question. You know, what does success mean to you? What is your definition of success? Yeah. I love that idea. Good job. It's funny that you brought that up and I'll answer your question too. But it's funny that you brought that up because in two days, I'm speaking at an event here in uh, Miami, a biohacking event, and I hired a videographer to fly in from uh, Vegas 
and we're going to record at the event, but we're spending the entire Saturday going to South Beach, Ocean Drive, Lincoln Road, and I'm going to be asking people questions like, what is the keto diet? What are your thoughts on cholesterol? What is intermittent fasting to you? What do you think about calorie counting? So like health-related questions for, for content. So I love that you're doing that. Yeah. Um, some good questions would be, what does failure mean to you, right? Mm. I think it's really interesting to see what people think. Some people think they are failure, and some people think that failure is not a person and it's an event. I, I'm part of the latter. I also would like to you to ask probably like, what's been your biggest setback in your life, right? And you hear yeah. some of wrenching stories. That'll be cool. And then what's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten in life would be a great question too. I love that. Oh, actually, let me ask you this. What's the piece of advice that you've been given? You didn't want to hear it, but it proved to be true over time. That I didn't want to hear, but it have proved to be true over time. Well, I have a close friend of mine. His name is Alex Montalenti. He's a very smart guy. He's one of my best friends. He's also a very like wise business guy. I met him probably like six or seven years ago where I was I was dabbling in photography and I, photo I did a shooting event for his meditation course. Anyways, that's how we met. But I was also a personal trainer at that time. So he hired me as his personal trainer. And for anybody who has ever worked with a personal trainer, or if you are a personal trainer, you know that it's much more than just working out. It's kind of like a therapy session. They sh Every client shares their life with you. And that's, he was sharing his life with me and I was sharing my life with him. So this leads me to the, the point of the story is because he started to coach me business-wise. I started to coach him health-wise. And he told me I need to play a bigger game. I need to see more greatness mm -hmm. in myself because I don't see it in myself. I need to have more confidence. I need to stop charging what I was charging back then, which was, I think was like $50 an hour. Now my rate's $1,500 an hour, which is crazy to look back. So he, you know, forced me to step out of my comfort zone, dig into the greatness inside of me. And you know, the cool thing, the amazing thing about having a mentor or a friend or a supporter or a coach, et cetera, they see greatness in you sometimes where you don't see greatness in yourself. And for many, many years, I didn't see greatness in myself, but I, I, I leaned on the greatness he saw in me. So the advice he gave me was to play a bigger game, charge more money, stop thinking small of yourself. And I didn't like to, I didn't, at that time, I didn't like hearing that, but I listened to him and it made a big difference in my life. How did you shift from the external validation to creating that from an internal perspective? I started to become aware of the reason why, the reasons why I was having self-limiting thoughts, right? We all have self-limiting thoughts. And, uh, and through the work of Bob Proctor, who's actually the image right there, he once shared a story with me about a baby elephant in Africa. And the story goes as such, and it's gonna, the story is going to answer the question. A baby elephant was born out in Africa. And what they do with baby elephants, the, as soon as the elephant's walking, they put the elephant to work, right? All day, they would put the elephant to work. Sun goes down. They would tie these shackles around the ankles of the elephant and then uh, stake the shackles into the ground and leave the baby elephant there overnight. Come back in the morning, same thing. Put the elephant to work all day long. But the baby elephant wanted to break free and escape and live a life of freedom. And it tried. It tried to break those shackles, but it was just a baby elephant. It didn't have the strength. And it tried for weeks and weeks and weeks until eventually it stopped even trying. And then something happened. Years later, the baby elephant is now a full-grown elephant, a beast capable of pulling 10 times its own body weight, capable of pulling loaded railroad cart. And something interesting happens. The baby elephant, now a full-grown elephant, they put it to work all day long and they put the same shackles around the ankle, stake it into the ground overnight. And the elephant, although it could easily break free and live a life of freedom, the full-grown elephant doesn't even try to escape. Mm. It would sit there and die before it even tries to escape because it's been conditioned to believe when those shackles are on your ankles, you're stuck. The only thing that would move that baby elephant is if you lit a fire underneath it. 
And those shackles, those chains are your self-limiting thoughts and behaviors. The reason we have them is because of all of the, our experiences, the first seven years of growing up, self-limiting thoughts have nothing to do with who you are or your potential. It has everything to do with your conditioning, those shackles. So I started to understand that about myself, that I'm having all these self-limiting thoughts and I needed external validation because of all of the relationships I had growing up and the experiences I had, that has nothing to do with me and my potential. I have a message that could serve the world and I got my attention off of um, being selfish and how I look, how I sound, and I got into the people that I could help. That's a beautiful thing. I, I appreciate you sharing that story. It's it's powerful to say the least. Definitely something I, I really want people to go back and listen to again because that's how powerful that was. I do want to ask you, you mentioned the word biohacking and you know I hear this word a lot and I have to ask this for everyone that's tuned into this. Where do you start when it comes to biohacking, right? And I think that's where the rest of this conversation will go for the most yeah. part. But like, where does one even begin? Because there's just so many things. And I'll give you examples. I get caught up on it all the time, right? Do I install a new water system in my house so that I have better water? Do I, you know, buy a red light? So like, where does anyone just start? What's point A? I love it. Yeah, I have a bunch of red lights here and a sauna there. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, you don't have to start there for sure. That would be something you do later on. But biohacking is simply like a shortcut to success, right? Health success specifically. I would start with your eating schedule. And this schedule, is, I okay. guess, a biohacking tip or not, but it's a very powerful health tip. If you were to just give yourself and everybody in the audience, give yourself at least three hours of fasting before bed, that would make a big difference in your health. Meaning if you go to bed at 11 p.m., you got to make sure you're done eating by 8 p.m. You got to give a three-hour buffer of digestion before bed. If you could make that even a longer buffer, meaning like you could take your dinner from 8 p.m. to 5 or 6 p.m. and have like a five or six-hour fasting window, you'll get even more results. And here's why. One of the worst things you can do for your health, if you're an entrepreneur or just a human being, is to eat before bed. It'll disrupt your sleep. It'll disrupt parts of your sleep that are very important. There's processes during sleep where you burn fat, you detoxify the brain, you get rid of accumulated plaques and proteins, you process short-term memory for long-term memory. Amazing things happen, but when you're digesting food because you just ate before bed, you're taking away all of this energy and all of these resources from these amazing processes that happen during sleep, and you're guiding it towards digestion. You're going to wake up groggier. You're not going to get the benefit of, of restorative sleep because you ate before bed. So I don't care what diet you're doing. I don't care what exercise you're doing. If you could just at least give yourself a three to six hour fasting buffer before bed, doing that without changing anything else, you'll get results by that. That's so interesting. And I have to ask this, right? This is just something that always comes to mind. Does advice like that apply to everyone? It does with the caveat that if somebody's metabolism is very broken and they're eating every two to three hours, every two to three hours, and they decide, okay, I'm going to fast for three to five hours before bed, they might go hypoglycemic, meaning their blood sugars might drop steeply. So of course, there's a caveat there, but eventually they would need to work on their metabolism to be able to do that. So to answer your question, yes, that would benefit every single person with the exception of a baby or a child that's growing, they need more nutrition, but for every adult sure. that would benefit them. Yes. I love that. It leads me to ask because I, I've definitely been in the shoes where, you know, you have a stressful day, you're, you know, whether it's you're, you're working corporate or you own your own business, whatever you do, right? It doesn't even matter. You just have a stressful day, whatever it is. And then you have your dinner. But as you're laying down to go to sleep, 
you can't sleep and then all of a sudden you roll out of bed and oh look there's uh there's some oreos and a nice glass of milk and you're just dunking in there and then all of a sudden you lay back in bed and you're able to go to sleep because you know you're you're all full and maybe you're in a food coma how do you break that and i don't know if that's this like food disorders or whatever that may be that might be even you know a deeper topic but i'm curious like that's definitely something i've done before and it's really to avoid the emotions of whatever the day brought about. Totally. And that's relatable, Matt, because we've all been there and we all continue mm-hmm. to have those days where it's just like high volume, high stress. And even for myself, when I have a very heavy day that could be stressful, I get hungrier. And that's a fact. Like there's more stress and cortisol you produce. You also produce more of the hunger hormone ghrelin. So it does make you hungrier. So I mean, being metabolically flexible would be the best thing to do, meaning being in mm-hmm. ketosis and flexing in and out of ketosis, which is what I teach. Because when you're in ketosis, your ketones are very satiating. There's different chemicals and things that happen that, that signal to the brain and um, there's something called leptin, which is a hormone that teaches you that you're full, no need to eat. And there's receptor sites in the brain for leptin. And when you're in ketosis, it actually really helps that communication process. Also, making sure your last meal has a lot of protein in it, because protein is also very filling and satiated. And that, when I mean, when I say protein, I'm not talking about plant-based protein. I'm talking about animal-based protein. Very different animal-based protein is bioavailable, and it activates hormones and chemicals and, and signals to your body and your stomach that you're full. So having a really protein-rich meal is your last meal, being metabolically flexible, keeping your electrolytes up, because sometimes you could be dehydrated and it could cue the hunger signals, and then brushing your teeth right after dinner because most people don't want to brush their teeth twice. So those are a few things you can do. <laughs> I love that. Now, when it comes down to fasting in general, whether it be, you know, I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is what is the ideal fasting window? Is it 16-8 or is it, you know, something different? There's not an ideal window. How do I phrase this? A 16-8 is great. An 18-6 is great. OMAD is great. A longer fast is great. I'm a big fan of the variation, right? So when we think about okay. we think about the greatest fitness coaches and personal trainers out there, they have one thing in common. They have a lot of things in common, but the main thing they have in common is this. They always change up the workout routine for their clients because it mm-hmm. keeps body guessing and adapting and it helps them get results. Like P90X was, you know, muscle confusion and it works because it you change things up. So my point of sh- sharing that is that a 16-8 is great, but doing a 16-8 every day for months, your results will slow down. But if you do a 16-8 one day and then an 18-6 and then one day you don't fast at all and then one day you do a 24-hour fast, like that variation and adaptation is going to force the body and the cells to adapt and you continue to get results. Now, let me answer your question though. So I love, number one, mixing up the work, the um, fasting schedule. But if there was going to be one schedule that I think most people can do long term, it would be an 18-6 versus a 16-8. With the eating window, I'll explain what an 18-6 is, but with the eating window being as earlier in the day as possible. So an 18-6 means out of a 24-hour period, six hours out of that 24-hour period is your eating window. 18 hours out of that 24-hour window, you're fasted. You're just having water, some sea salt, some coffee, some tea. You're not eating. So if your eating window is is six hours and you begin eating at 8 a.m., that would be It would be 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. would be a six-hour eating window. That would be an ideal window to get two or three meals in. And then from 2 p.m. to 8 a.m. the next day, you're in the fasted state. That would benefit a lot of people right there. That's so interesting. I've definitely done 16-8. And I want to bring this up. And I guess this is more of the mental side of it. I really appreciated the fact that you said 
you know, use a variable, right? Like 18, six, 16, eight, you know, one day you don't fast because personally, I'll tell you this, like I use this app to track my fast and on a day that I'll miss a fast, I'll look back on my history and that the day after I missed that fast, I have numerous days I missed fast in a row because I shoot for perfection. So what's your advice to someone listening to this that might be in the same boat as me in regards to thinking it needs to be perfect? Yeah, I I think perfectionism is just a fancy word procrastinator. (laughs) Not Mm. that I'm calling you a procrastinator, Matt, but I don't really expect perfection. I I expect progress. And if you actually have a day where you don't fast and you plan to fast, that's actually a good thing. Your body probably needed a rest, you know, from, you know, because fasting is a stress to your body, right? It is a stress mm-hmm. to your body. Like exercise, it could be a great positive stress. But if you're always doing fasting, it's good to have a reset, a day where you don't work out, a day where you don't fast. So look at that day as your feast day. A lot of people miss the point here. And I'm guilty of this. When I fell in love with fasting back in 2013, I, all I wanted to do was fast more. I felt so good. I wanted more fasting, more autophagy, more fat loss. I just felt so good. But here's the thing. Too much of a good thing turns out being a bad thing. People forget mm-hmm the other part of fasting, which is the feasting part. Every cell in our body is designed to fast and to feast, to fast and to feast. So if you have those days where you're not fasting, look at it as a feast day. Enjoy yourself. And that's not a cheat day. That's a feast day, healthy food. Enjoy it and then go back to fasting. So that's the way I would I would coach people on that. What's been your longest fast and what was the goal of it? Five days. Water Five fast. days. Yeah. Holy the, shit. The goal. The goal. So there's a there's a cancer researcher from Boston, Boston College. His name is Dr. Thomas Seafried. And he wrote a great book called Cancer as a Metabolic Disease. And mm seen in his lab when he's when his patients have achieved something called max autophagy and I'll explain that when his patients have achieved this during a long fast cancer tumors actually have shrunk right before his eyes like oh right goodness, before yeah. his eyes but then when they break the fast with sugar and carbs it grows back he's also been he's also said in the past that if you were to do a long fast like a 7 day water fast once a year you would reduce your risk of cancer by about 95% right and that's because wow. of a process called max autophagy So let me explain that real quick. Autophagy is a process that gets turned on during a fast. The Greek definition of autophagy literally means eat thyself, meaning when the body is in a fasted state, the innate intelligence, the wisdom inside the human body thinks you're going through a famine. You know, we're hardwired this way because our ancestors all went through periods of fasting. So the human body, the innate intelligence doesn't know about Uber Eats or DoorDash or the supermarket or your pantry. (laughs) It automatically goes into this, whoa, we're going through a famine. So the innate intelligence turns on this process called autophagy. And the job of this process is to look for cells and proteins and fats that are damaged and to fix them and regenerate them. So the analogy that I give is like a refrigerator, Matt. We opened up your refrigerator at home. We see growth groceries that all have an expiration date on them. What would happen if we let all the groceries inside of your refrigerator expire, but instead of throwing them in the trash, we just leave them there and put new groceries and close that door. Mm. It's going to be disgusting. Mold, bacteria, disease will manifest in that refrigerator. Well, the human body is like a refrigerator. We have cells and bacteria and proteins that have an expiration date. Autophagy is the process of getting rid of the expired groceries. So with a long fast, three to five to seven days, you hit this maximum autophagy. And Dr. Thomas Seafried teaches it as looking at blood glucose and blood ketones and getting a one-to-one ratio. So the goal of me doing my first five-day water fast was to hit that one-to-one ratio. And I hit it on day four. I stayed in it another extra day, and then I broke the fast. And it's a very, very powerful healing tool, but you really got to know what you're doing because it could be extreme for some people. 
Absolutely. I mean, it sounds like I've done 24 hours. I, I couldn't imagine doing five days. Like I give you a ton of freaking credit. Like that is incredible. Yeah, great too. 24 hours. It was really cool because I was able to do it in a way where I was able to have dinner and then go right back to my fasting. And I, you know, I, I don't know the exact details of what I did the day after, but I broke my fast with dinner and then I just stopped eating the rest of the day from there, which was pretty cool. But it brings me to ask you in regards to autophagy, how long does it actually take to get into that? Now you talked about max, like, is there another window that might not be max? I, I doubt we would call it minimum, but how long does it take to get into that phase? Yeah, it's hard. It's it's hard to um to know the real answer to that because you have to go in a lab and take a biopsy okay. and look at a specific protein. But I'm going to give you my best guess based off of my research and people I've interviewed. We, we hypothesize that around the 16 to 17 hour mark, you're starting to get this autophagy process. So 16, 17 hours into a fast, you start to get this cell recycling process. Now, that's kind of the average. If somebody is really metabolically flexible and they're actually active during their fast, like they're exercising or moving, they could probably get that around the 10 or 11 hour mark versus waiting. 16 hours. but And if somebody's very sedentary and overweight and obese, they might have to go 24 hours to get the autophagy. So there's many variables there, but I would say on average 16 to 17 hours, you start to turn on that process. It's interesting that you mentioned that movement and, you know, I'm, I'm sure body fat and all of those things really come into play there. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. It leads me to ask something out of just total curiosity in regards to the keto diet and intermittent fasting. Uh, when it comes down to ketosis, is there a difference between ketosis achieved through the keto diet and through intermittent fasting? That's a good question. Not really. They're, you know, keto technically is not even a diet. It's a metabolic process. And there's so many different ways right. to your point to achieve ketosis. So there's not really a difference. Ketosis is ketosis. But I would say this, it's much easier to achieve ketosis and feel really good doing it nutrition-wise with a gradual decrease in carbs versus just saying, I'm going to fast for 24 hours. Because for a lot of people who just do that to enter ketosis, you might not feel that great. So that's the difference. Yeah. But yeah, ketosis is ketosis. That's so interesting. I, I got to ask you this. What's a question you wish more people would ask you on this particular subject in regards to biohacking and health? You know, I would say that people forget about the fundamentals. Uh, we talk a lot about, mm -hmm. you know, what are the fundamentals of health would be the question, right? So we talk a lot about red light therapy and like you said, saunas and bio, um, blue light blocking glasses and this supplement and that biohack and, and all those are great. But if you don't have the fundamentals, if that foundation is not strong, it doesn't matter what you throw at it. It's not going to give you the results you want. So the question would be, you know, what, what are the fundamentals and why are they important? And I can answer what are those fundamentals? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. Well, we mentioned one of them, which is sleep. If you're not getting quality okay. sleep, it doesn't matter what diet you follow, what CrossFit gym you go to, what fasting schedule you follow. You're not, you're not going to get the results you want. Yeah, you might get some results, but you got to prioritize sleep. And as entrepreneurs, I know you could know, you could attest to this, Matt, it's, it's hard. You're like, I, I'll grind it out. I'll, I'll, I'll sleep when I'm dead. And I used to have that me mentality, but I'm <laughs> telling you when you sleep, even though you have, you might have less time in the day, you're more productive in those hours. So sleep is one of them. Thoughts are another, the, I call it the mental six pack, the inner sizing, mm -hmm. if you will, you got to make sure you're controlling those thoughts and mastering those thoughts, which masters stress. And then one more thing to the fundamentals is it's actually a vitamin. It's the most powerful health vitamin in the world. It's probably the best biohacking supplement you could ever take. It's also in that fundamentals health category. And I'm going to explain what it is and, and why it's so powerful. You know who Dr. Joe Dispenza is? Absolutely. So Dr. Joe Dispenza 
does these seminars, right? And he'll take hundreds, thousands of people through these seminars. He's a brilliant doctor, a chiropractor. And he's he did an experiment where a bunch of his participants that were going through a seminar, he he gave them vitamin G and he looked at their their brain and their body into these MRI scans. And he saw when they were given vitamin G and he scanned them, he saw 1,200 chemical reactions take place in their body and brain instantaneously that were all anti-inflammatory. Oxytocin, dopamine, serotonin, GABA, all these amazing neurotransmitters to put the body in this anti-inflammatory state. So your audience and you're wondering, what is vitamin G? Where can I get it? Vitamin G is gratitude, vitamin gratitude, the practice of gratitude. It's free. You can't overdose on it. And it's one of the fundamentals to health. Before you throw in vitamin D or vitamin C or all these other supplements, practice and, and get your daily dose of vitamin G with sleep and movement and mindset. And then everything else will upgrade. But we got to make sure that fundamental, that foundation is built strong. I got to talk to you about gratitude. I have to ask you, and maybe you've never experienced this. Maybe you have. I've found it hard to be grateful for things that I have because they just feel so normal, right? Have you ever experienced that before? Yeah, I have because I find that sometimes I I write down what I'm grateful for before bed in the morning. I would write down the same thing. And, and if you're writing the same thing over and over and over, it can lose that effect. So I, I try to make a spin to it and find new things. But yes, I know exactly what you mean. So I, ha- I have to ask you, how were you able to, to feel the feeling of gratitude, right? Because it's one thing to write them down in the journal, but it's another thing to actually feel it. And the lack of feeling is definitely present in a lot of people I've talked to about this. So I'm curious, like what changed or what do you suggest to change to feel? Yeah. And you're right. It's one thing to write it down, which is good, but you want to feel it and not just have it as like something you check the box on, but, but feel it. Neville Goddard is a great author. He's passed away, but he has a great book called feeling is the secret in that book. He talks about how to feel it, how to visualize it. Um, actors kind of do this. It's kind of like an actor's method, right? They, they, have this persona and they're able to experience something even though it's not real. So I would recommend studying Neville Goddard and start, starting with that book, Feeling is the Secret. The best way to do that, the best time I should say to do that is before bed and in, in the morning. That's when the subconscious mind is very impressionable and it's easier to have mm-hmm. those feelings versus like in the middle of the day where your conscious mind is running the show and it's probably harder to experience those feelings. So I would say before bed in the morning when you wake up are two of the best times and Neville Goddard has some great information on how to really maximize the feeling. I just wrote that down. I want to share with you something that a gentleman on the show had said about gratitude because I had mentioned the same thing. His name is Anil Gupta. He was Mike Tyson's former happiness coach. Wow. And I had I had brought this up to him and I said, you know what? Like we were, he brought up gratitude. We're going back and forth about it. And I said, to be honest, like I write it down, but I don't feel grateful. Like, I, I mean, it's not to say that I'm ungrateful, but like I don't feel grateful. And he said, Matt, let me ask you something. He said, let me see your hands. So I took both of my hands. I put them on the screen like this. And he said, all right, you have two hands. One's a right and one's a left. I said, yeah. He goes, are you a righty or a lefty? And I said, well, I'm a righty. He said, okay, so you don't need your left hand. And I said, well, I mean, ideally I would like to keep it. And it was in that moment he said, you are grateful for it, right? Because he says, you're not just going to give me your left hand. And when I started to adopt that mindset, I found that to be really interesting because Mm -hmm. if you could reverse engineer it to, you know, someone taking something away from you, you're kind of grateful for it, you know? 
Yeah, that's good. Yeah, so imagine if whatever you've been writing gratitude for is gone and and uh, gone. The opposite, yeah. right? Then you're like, man, I'm really grateful for this. Thank you for having exactly. this in my life. Exactly. And uh, listen, I'm a hard-headed guy, so if that if that was the way to crack the code yeah. for me, but uh definitely I'm d- I'm going to check out that book. I appreciate you sharing that. I have to ask top 3, if you can't give 3, two, whatever, top biggest health myths that are out there right now. Number one is you need to be in a calorie deficit to lose weight and get healthy. And okay. um, I think calories matter, but I, they're not important. They're very, very low on the priority list of things to pay attention to. It's one of the biggest scams the health and nutrition and fitness industry has told you is that it's all about calories, calories in versus calories out. And I'll give you a stupid reason why. <laughs> I should say a stupid scenario why. Let's say we, we uh, went to... Um, a seminar where Warren Buffett was teaching how to become financially independent. And me and Matt are sitting there, we're taking notes, we're learning from good old Warren. And Matt's like, I have a question, Warren. And Warren selects Matt to ask the question. Matt, you say, Warren, how do I become financially independent like you? Could you give me your strategy? And Warren Buffett says, easy, Matt, just spend less money than you earn. And then he goes and he continues on with his lecture. And Matt's like, yeah, that makes sense. But what's the solution? Like, what what are the steps? There's more to it, right, Warren? Same thing with telling people just eat less and move more. Yeah, that makes Mm. sense. But what's the solution? How do you actually do it? It's all about hormones and inflammation. So when we focus on calories, it takes the attention away from what is important, hormones and inflammation. And look, for years, I used to teach the whole calories in versus calories out. It does people a big disservice. So that's the first one. The second one would be that these vegetables, oil slash seed oils are healthy for you. And a lot of nutritionists and doctors and dietitians promote these. The American Heart Association has their stamp of approval on these oils in the supermarket. I'm going to give your audience a list of eight of them. But before I do, I'm going to really paint the picture for you right now. It's going to blow your mind when I share this. Just a few days ago, I had my friend and colleague, Dr. Kate Shanahan, on an online keto challenge I was doing. Dr. Kate Shanahan, she's a medical doctor. She was Kobe Bryant's nutritionist for the Lakers when he used to play. She got Dwight Howard off of his sugar addiction. She introduced Kobe Bryant to bone broth. She's a New York Times bestselling author. Like She's the real deal. And I asked her this question, Matt. I said, Dr. Kate, three scenarios. Which one is worse for your health? Scenario number one, you're smoking cigarettes every day. Scenario number two, you're eating processed sugar every day. Scenario number three, you're eating seed oils every day. Which is worse? And she goes, that's easy, Ben, the seed oils. She said, really? yeah, she said, smoking is not good for you, but you take your last puff, damage is done. Sugar is not good for you, especially in excess, but you could stay active and exercise and burn that off. Seed oils stick around in your body fat and cells for two to five years, creating chronic Holy inflammation. Shit. Dude, the American Heart Association has their stamp of approval on them at the supermarket. And you ask why. She calls the American Heart Association the biggest fake news organization in America. They get paid billions of dollars and they are corrupt. Um, So I'm going to share the eight oils that you want to avoid. And they're promoted by dietitians and nutritionists and TikTok doctors doctors and all that. You have, she calls it the hateful eight. So you have three C's, three S's and two others. So here are the oils to avoid. Canola oil, corn oil, cottonseed oil, soybean oil, safflower oil, and sunflower oil. And then you have rice bran oil and grape seed oil. Those are the hateful eight. The healthier ones to swap to, to switch to, would be coconut oil, olive oil, avocado oil, butter, ghee, beef tallow, duck fat. Those would be much, much better for you. 
So regular butter, if you're, you know, about to make scrambled eggs on your stove, regular butter would be better than the oil. So much better. Like real Kerrygold yeah. grass-fed butter, like any grass-fed butter, so much better than those bad oils. That is so interesting. It's crazy, the information that we're conditioned to believe and then having a conversation like this. And it's just like super freaking eye-opening, man. It's crazy. It's, 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 yeah. it's, it's absolutely freaking wild. It's corrupt. Um, That's what it is. <laughs> yeah, but I just don't get why. Like, And I mean, that is a really deep conversation and I'm not sure if we're going there right now, but it's like, why, why lie to the people? I'll give you it in you one know? answer. I'll give you in one sentence. The answer in one sentence. A cured patient is a lost customer. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. But it's like, even I feel like it's control, you know, and it's like, and I mean, I think the world is breaking free of that because there's people like you here in the world that are, you know, putting incredible work out on social and in books and in programs and whatnot. And I see it happening more and more and more and more. It is an awakening. And I feel like we are in that. But yeah, that's the resistance that we're, we're, you know, we're putting a dent in that. That's the goal. I think that's exactly why we're we're seeing culture shift to canceling people and all of these freaking things. It's it's wild. It's absolutely wild. But on that note, I only got you for a couple more minutes here, Ben. I want to let everyone know that socials, websites, books, all of that good stuff is in the show notes of this episode. But beyond that, do you have anything that we should make people aware of? You know, my website is benazadi.com and it has all the yep. stuff. I'm sure you put it down below. Uh, the last thing I'll share with you is that there are so many different ways to get healthy. Really, there's the keto diet, the paleo diet, the vegan diet. I think they're all great short-term, even keto. I love keto short-term, but it's not really the food you're putting in your mouth that's going to change your life and your health. It's the thoughts that are going on in your head. So please don't discount mm. the part about your thoughts. One last thing on that, if somebody wants the science, because sometimes people are like, that's just woo-woo, there's no science, but there is science. Dr. Bruce Lipton, world-renowned cell biologist. I've interviewed him on my Keto Camp podcast. He has proven that your thoughts are a frequency that are small enough to penetrate your cells and communicate with your DNA nucleus. Meaning, if it's a negative thought, a stinking thinking thought, a hateful thought, a resentful thought, an angry thought, that signal sent to your DNA tells your DNA to produce inflammatory proteins. But if it's a healthy thought, a grateful thought, a loving thought, an abundant thought. That frequency is then sent to the DNA to tell the DNA to produce anti-inflammatory proteins. If we have 60,000 thoughts per day, that means we have 60,000 opportunities to put your body in a healing anti-inflammatory state every day. So that's what I want to leave your audience with. You, you are really in control of your DNA, of your genetics, not the other way around. So you might have beat me to my last question. I always end the show with with one last question. And I was going to ask if Ben lives to whatever year he wants to live to. He puts out whatever it is, podcast, books, all of that. You impact as many people as you want, but you can only be remembered for one piece of advice. What would that be? Is that what you just had mentioned? It would be. Yeah, that's part of it. And it's a great question that you asked. It would be waking up a billion people. And helping a billion people take responsibility and ownership over their health. Because here's the deal. If you treat your health casually, you end up a casualty. Many people, instead of living 100 years on planet Earth, they live the same year 70 times, right? They're going, they're tiptoeing their way through life, hoping to land safely on death's door. So I would love to leave a legacy that Ben Azadi woke up 1 billion people to help them take ownership and responsibility over their health. 
I love that. Ben, I, I could ask you so many more questions. I mean, we might have to do a part two of this. I want to express yeah. gratitude to you for being here and being a part of this and allowing us to share your message with our community and beyond. So I just want to say thank you so much. Yeah, Matt, you are a pro. I've been interviewed a lot and you're definitely up there as one of the best interviewers. You definitely do your homework. You're a professional. I see why your podcast is successful. So congrats to you. And I would love to do a round two in the future. I appreciate that. You have just tuned into the Decoding Success Podcast. I want to give a huge shout out to Ben Azadi for the way that he showed up. The health detective, truly brilliant individual. You could check him out in the show notes of this episode where you'll be able to find his website, his socials, his books, his programs, all of that good stuff is in the show notes of this episode. I also want to give a huge shout out to you for the way that you showed up for yourself. There's a reason that you're still listening to my voice come through your headphones, your car, your phone, however you're listening to this. And that reason might be because there's someone in your life that also needs to hear this. So I'm going to you. This episode is totally free, but if there was a fee, it would be to make sure that you're sharing it. So go ahead and do that because you have the ability, the power, and the right to change someone's life by these words right here, right now. Until next time, everyone, be blessed. Peace.